Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're taking a look inside the day of Peter James, finding out how he plots and plans and publishes. His brand new Roy Grace novel is out now, it's called Find Them Dead, and he sold over 20 million books across 37 languages. And i got to say, he's got quite a luxurious writing day. Works late into the night, sipping on a martini with four, count four olives in it. It's a day filled with writing and looking after like a zoo's worth of animals as well. Uh, We talk about how he was always destined to be a storyteller, about the flow of the story too and the narrative charts that he creates, and what he absolutely needs before he starts writing. What I need to be comfortable, first and foremost, is to to really feel I know the subject I'm writing about. Um, then Then I'm kind of partway there. And also... I. I think with storytelling, there is an element of instinct. If I read back in the morning what I wrote wrote the night before, and I find that I'm speed reading or skimming the page, then I know that it's not right. It's it's got to grip me, because I know if it's not going to grip me, it ain't going to grip anybody. Loads more on the way with Peter James in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. It's dead easy. It's the show where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful writers. Uh, I've got some fantastic authors in the bag for you soon, by the way. Chats with Men of Van Prague and, and Amanda Jennings and, and Jasper Ford, all recorded, all ready to get out there for you in the next few weeks. So remember to subscribe. Wherever you're listening to this, if you've not done that yet, subscribe so you get those shows automatically. Also, there is talk of another roundtable episode on the way. It went down fantastically well. I had almost more uh, kind of correspondence about that than I have for anything else I've really done with this show. So I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort out more. I'm, I'm getting in touch with a few authors, trying to pull them all together. That should be with you in a few weeks' time as well. This week, we've got just one writer, but a brilliantly successful one. Peter James has published 38 books. I think 38 books. Uh, I'm always a little bit sceptical of giving a number when they get that high and there's so many of them. 
because it almost guarantees I'll have left one out and then someone will point it out to me. But, you know, we're going to say he's published around 38 books. Many of them have been Roy Grace novels. Uh, his new one is called Find Them Dead. It sees Roy on secondment with the Met Police in London, confronting a wave of drug, gang violence and county lines crimes. We talk about how he researches his ideas with the actual police force, talking to an almost real-life Roy Grace, and we learn why they actually give him loads of gifts which he has around his house, which is almost a museum now. We also talk about how his writing style has changed and how he's worked his day out, depending on how he feels it's best. We also talk about the journey of his story and the charts that he writes to figure out the best place to put ideas. Uh, I really think it's a brilliant chat, this one. Peter is, is really interested in the craft. He's done videos himself online discussing these type of things with authors. So he really he really gets it. He really has figured out how he works best. A perfect guest for this show. And we start, as we always do, with what Peter sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, I'm in a, a tower um, about just under 70 feet up. Um, with a 360-degree view of uh, the island of Jersey. Um, so I, I can see quite a large part of the island from up here. And I've got... I collect police memorabilia. So I'm surrounded by... As I look around, I'm surrounded by police helmets um, and and hats from around the world. Obviously, quite a lot of British ones. Uh, French, French gendarme, a Chinese police hat, Russian, uh, and various, various others. It's one of my kind of big interest and a lot of police that I do research with know my <clears throat> passion so wherever I travel in the world on book promotion I try and meet police and almost always they give me anything ranging from a badge to a whole uniform. Did that start before or after you began writing about the force? Were you were you very interested in collecting stuff before that? No not um, not police memorabilia um, but I just started, officers started just giving it to me. There's a sort of culture in the police that they, they give each other badges and things. And then I thought, and I suddenly, after about five or six years of writing Roy Grace, I suddenly realized I had enough for a small museum. And I, so I, um, my real life Roy Grace, who is a retired detective chief superintendent, actually curated a museum for me at, at, at my home. And it's sort of grown from there. And I love it. I find it very inspiring to kind of to write and just look up. And I've got sort of, <clears throat> I've got two mannequins dressed in full, full uniform that scare the hell out of people who come in. Talk to me about what else is inspiring. Have you got artwork? Have you got books? Perhaps have you got things that are very important to the specific story you're writing at the time? A whiteboard, post-it notes, for instance? I have. Um, I tend to do everything these days. I used to put everything on kind of post-it notes and I used to stick them on the walls. And years ago, and my cleaning lady left all the windows open in a hurricane. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I had a complete jumble. So now I, I use my kind of trusty Mac. But I've got a lot that inspires me. I have... Funnily enough, one of the things is my old school report, my leaving report from uh, from Charterhouse. Uh, my my housemaster, who I really didn't like, I mean, we, I, he, I, and it was mutual. You know, he, I thought he was a wanker, and he thought I was a wanker. But I, he, there's this incredibly prophetic report he wrote, which I have framed in my office, um, which ends up saying, "I'm sure he'll one day uh, have a literary career." 
What do you think he saw in you there, even if he thought you perhaps weren't worthy of much else? I'm not sure. He was clearly a much wise... You know, I think, you know, when you're a kid, you're very arrogant, aren't you? And, and, and you think you know better than everybody else. And this man had a slight lisp and... Um, he didn't like me because I, 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 <clears throat> I was quite a rebel at school and I think he liked people who conformed. Um, but do you want me to read it to you? I can read it to you. Uh, I mean, he wrote this in 1967. It was um, enigmatic and unpredictable as ever. Uh, Peter James fits into no conventional mould and has clearly taxed his tutor's powers of prophecy. <laughs> I'm sure he will ultimately be successful, but I doubt if his talent will flower in a solicitor's office or even in a university setting. A literary career seems inevitable, but there may be some false starts. My best wishes to him. Pretty amazing. And what's lovely is that his widow wrote to me about three years ago. Um, She's about in her 90s now, saying, oh, I've been reading these crime novels and I've just realised it's you that wrote them. And I sent her a copy of the report and she was just over the moon to see it. I can't figure out if a teacher nowadays would be allowed to do that or not. What, too damaging to someone sort of... Be, be, be so brutally honest. Yes, I mean, I, I mean they, they were in those days. Um, you know, I, th- I mean, most of my reports I can remember from my childhood tended to be fairly scathing. Um apart from my headmaster, and I remember I had this wonderful headmaster called Oliver Van Ors, Ovo, and he had only two interests in life, which was ceramics and literature. Um, and we got on really well because, although I was kind of a bad boy at school, I was there with Genesis, and and, um, and, and the Tower House at that time had quite a kind of bohemian feel to it, and, and, and this guy was... In as much as the headmaster of a, of a large school can be quite bohemian himself. And, and we just got on really well. And I remember he had me in on my last day. And he said, James, will you come back in 20 hours' time and tell me your school days were the happiest days of your life? I shall consider you to have failed. <laughs> and I met him almost 20 years to the, to the week by sheer chance at a, at a, at a dinner. And I reminded him, he said, God, did I say that? Good God. Let me, let me drag you back to the present, if I may. So you're, you're sat down in your room. Where would I find you when you are storytelling? Are you behind a big oak desk? Are you in a nice chair lounge? Well, I, I have two kind of writing, primary writing sessions a day. Um, my, my real creative day starts at six o'clock in the evening um, when I have a vodka martini with, with four, four, four olives. And I write downstairs in our, in our library, so I'm kind of quite close to my wife, and, and she's working on a, a, a canine massage course at the moment. So I work down there, and I, I, and I write there usually from about six till half eight, nine in the evening. Then, then we have our, our evening meal and watch something on television, something on Netflix or whatever. And then in the morning, I, I kind of, I always exercise, I take the dogs out. We have uh, a menagerie here. We have three dogs. We have four pygmy goats, uh, hens, ducks, um, and, and various other animals. So I kind of walk the dogs, feed the animals, um, and then either run or swim for half an hour. And then I come up to my tower, 
And I'll, depending how I'm feeling, I'll either sit at a desk. I had a beautiful desk made some some years ago. So it's got everything exactly the way I, I love it. But I actually, my favorite writing position is in a, I've got this wonderful electric armchair. Um, and it's not that soft. It's quite firm. But I love to sit in that. And that, that's my most comfortable position for writing. And I'm, I spend most of the morning in that writing. Thank you. Breakfast is, I'm a, I'm a breakfast fiend. So I love, I love making breakfast. It's one of my kind of treat times of the day. Uh, I guess my favorite is, is mushrooms with an omelette and tomatoes um, and, and fruit. Um, and then I come out to my office, and, and I do what all writers do, which is procrastinate. Um, you know, I think the easiest thing for all of us is to not write. So you know, I check my emails, I'll check Twitter, <clears throat> I'll check Instagram, um, sometimes have a glance through, through Facebook. Um, then what I do is um, I have the kind of ritual of making a really strong coffee, and then I sit down and I start off by reading what I wrote the night before. And I, I find that when I'm writing, my once I've started a novel, um, I make myself write a thousand words a day, six days a week, um, whatever time of the day, if I've gone out, if I'm doing interviews, whatever, I, I just force myself to write that, th that thousand words a day. And it's usually in the evening, in my evening writing time from sort of six till nine. And then in the morning I revise it, edit it, and almost invariably elongate it as well. I add to it, I think of more, more thoughts. I'll finish that around, I've probably started really knuckling down in my office about 10.30. And I'll stop about 1.30 go downstairs and, and have lunch and, and with my wife. And the current lunch is um, I've mastered the art of poaching eggs. Um, because of COVID, which, you know, we, we're trying to eat really healthily and eat immune-boosting foods. So lunch most days is, is a mashed avocado with turmeric in it and paprika and lime juice on toast with, 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 uh, with two poached eggs. Then I take the dogs out straight first thing in the afternoon. Um, and after that, I'll either, depending on the weather and depending on workload, I'll either play tennis um, or come back in. And my afternoon is kind of my dead time creatively. Um, so I'll either catch up on emails. Um, there's always backlog of kind of online interviews to do so I, I work at those or I do exactly what I'm doing now which is doing this interview with you um, either um, by voice or by zoom or physically depending on if, if we were in that normal time of, you, of where we could actually meet. How did this develop Peter the writing in the morning writing in the evening very luxuriously with, with a martini with four olives, learning that you've got this fallow period during the afternoon. How long did it take you to perfect this writing routine? And, and what, what what did you learn about it along the way? Well, two things. The, the reason the routine started was that in my kind of before I, 
I mean, I never ever thought when I started out I'd ever be lucky enough to, to earn a living writing. And I, and, I, and I do feel lucky because I just, I love doing it. I, people often say to me, are you ever going to retire? Uh, and my reply is, well, if I retired, all I do is write a book, so there's not much point. Uh, but I, you know, I, I really love it. But I never, I never had any confidence as a kid. You know, and my housemaster didn't really help either at that time. But I, I left school and I went in, I went to film school, and I ended up going into first television and, and then and then produ- mostly producing films, doing some writing, but I was doing more producing. Um, and that's when I started writing my first novel, and I had to make me time, and I was kind of living in, in, in North America then, um, and so it was easiest to make kind of, I found it's the best time that worked for me was like between about six and, and nine in the evening. So that's when I started doing my kind of creative writing. Um, and I just found that, that it came best. I was, I've always found a kind of a stiff drink, not too much. I think Hemingway said, write drunk, edit sober, but I, um, I try to like write edit, but I think a bit of rocket fuel, and I also play music, um, and I have um, two playlists. I have one which is a whole compilation of different singers and songs, including Taylor Swift, um, Van Morrison, which I played during the first three quarters of a novel, and then I play opera arias during the last twenty-five percent. They kind of lift me to the heaven. So I started, I just got into that state of, of snatching those two, three hours in the evening when I was working full-time film and television. And that just kind of stayed. And then when I um, made the break and decided to write full-time, I still kind of kept with those hours, um, but then I added in the morning. And I, I've always found the afternoons a dead time. I, when I was... 50 hours diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic. And something, something suddenly made a lot of sense because I would always have a real low point early afternoon, about an hour after lunch. And I thought it was just my kind of biorhythms, but it you know, turned out it was the sugar high from, from having lunch, which, which, makes you, which makes you dozy. So I suppose that's also contributed to my kind of lack of creativity in the afternoon aside from learning when you work best having the two playlists over what 38 books now uh, what 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 have you learned on that what do you need to be at your most creative in those two separate times of writing that you've allotted yourself it's a really good question i think um for me the, I'm, I'm a i'm a massive believer in research you know I think that people who read are, are by the mere fact that they're reading intelligent and I think that when when we read books we, we don't want just a story just a simple puzzle we're looking to learn something through the pages of any book we read about life about the human condition about the world in which we live and so when I'm researching when I'm writing whether it's a Roy Grace novel or a standalone, what's vital for me is to really understand all the, the background elements to the story. 
Um, you know, my my latest story, Grace, is you know revolves around uh, a major court case, and you know I spent ages in courts with judges, with with barristers, prosecutors, just understanding the culture of that world. So what what I need to be comfortable first and foremost is to to really feel I know the subject I'm writing about. Um, then, I, then I'm kind of part way there, and also I, I think with storytelling, it's, there is an element of instinct. If I read back in the morning what I wrote, wrote, wrote the night before, and I find that I'm speed reading or skimming the page, then I know that it's not right. It's, I, it's got to grip me because I know if it's not going to grip me, it ain't going to grip anybody. Talking about idea generation, Peter, in terms of a year, because, as I said, you've published 38 books. There is an audience out there that want one as close to a a book a year as you can make it. How does 12 months of writing a book work for you? When will you have that first idea? When will you research? When will you start to write? When does it need to be handed in? Well, I'm often... I mean, I've got... I know the next three Roy Grace novels that I'm that I'm going to write, um, so, so I'm always kind of planning ahead and researching ahead. You know, I'll I'll often sort of have an idea for a book, um, and I'll start just wherever I am in the UK or in the world. If there's a, a research opportunity to learn something about that subject, I, I do it and sort of bank it. Um, in terms of when I when I physically start, I think I'm a great believer. And I can't remember who it was who first said this, but that you don't find ideas; ideas find you. And there is some truth in that. I'll wake up sometimes just with something popping in my head, and I think, yes, that is going to be what I want to write next. So I've got to be really excited about the topic. But the books can come from literally anywhere. Um, I mean, one of my Roy Grace novels, and one of one of um, one of my favorites, Dead Tomorrow, started when I sat next to a woman at a dinner party who was um, working for a charity rescuing street kids, and she told me about the trade in in human organs, um, and that. Kids in Colombia would be very often kidnapped. Street kids begging at the airport would be picked up by the police and actually taken to an orphanage where they'd be brought up till their mid-teens and then somebody wealthy in the Western world needed a new kidney or a new liver for their daughter. And that child would be murdered and their organs harvested. And immediately I wanted to know more. And that set me on the research for writing Dead Tomorrow. Um... Often the police approach me. Um, my last Roy Grace novel, the one that's currently out, Dead at First Sight, that came out of a, a senior officer at Sussex Police um, said to me that people in Sussex had been swindled out of over £30 million in the, in the previous five years by online romance fraudsters, people who joined dating agencies 
looking looking for a, a new love or a new partner, um, meeting people who weren't at all who they appeared, and and that really intrigued me. And, and I was shortly after that lucky enough to meet a a guy in Brighton called Steve Buston, who's a very good looking motivational speaker who told me he discovered his identity was being used on 11 different dating sites by fraudsters. And another time, I, I will literally hear a conversation um, or see something in a newspaper. Um, but I think the, common, the commonality with all of them is it's an idea, and I think, yes, that would really excite me to, to, to know more about and, and I think that's the first criteria for me. I want to know more about it uh, and then write about it. How long will you give yourself in between projects? If you know three books, when, when you finish the next three books, sorry, when you finish one, uh, you said you're never going to retire, but do you give yourself a holiday? Well, the, the last story, Grace, I was really lucky and it's pure luck. I mean, I will... If I, I find if I, it takes me about seven months to write the first draft, from the time I write the first sentence to the time I write the end. And if I try to time it, um, I normally start a Roy Grace novel around um, March and deliver it first draft in sort of around about October, November. And then we always kind of usually book a holiday mid-November, so I have a kind of point to go to. Um, and I've managed to do that the last sort of three books, but it doesn't always work. Um, and if it doesn't, I hate to... I think with... I always tell anybody I'm giving advice to about writing that you need to get in a rhythm with writing. And, and it's really important to write a little bit every day, at least like six days a week, you know, whether it's a, a hundred words, two fifty, a thousand, fifteen hundred, whatever you're comfortable with. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, before we get back into it with Peter, uh, I've got some big news. If you have supported us over on Patreon, if you're a backer there, I have access to the post office now. So if you are waiting for little bits of, of Patreon merch that should be yours, they shouldn't be long in coming. Uh, if you don't get something in the next couple of weeks, do me a favour, drop us an email. Uh, I will get it sorted. If you do want something, if you want to be on that list of people I'm sending stuff to, uh, the only way to get it is to support the show over on Patreon. You can even get your work to sponsor the show. Most podcasts out there are sponsored by uh, Razors or weird refundable mattress companies i still can't work out how they work but anyway this one can be sponsored by you if you want a big old plug for your book at the start of the show if the release of your brand new novel has slightly been dampened through lockdown let me help it out you can sponsor this show get to patreon and pledge to us over there it doesn't have to be that big just a dollar or so a month really helps us carry on it helps us keep bringing you the the chats with the best authors that we can find as often as we can get them on and if you've learned anything so far which has changed the way that you tell your stories please do support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine let's get back to it then with peter james talking about his new roy grace novel find them dead Uh, in this part we talk about the beats of the story the rhythm how he knows when the big moments and when the twists should happen when they feel right also we talk about why he's a fairly ruthless editor and that how that helps him break up the day Uh, and we pick things up talking about how much he knows about the plot what does he need to know about the story before he begins typing it's a good point i mean uh... I know Lee Child tells me that you know, he just literally starts writing the first sentence and, and doesn't know what's going to happen next. Jeffrey Deaver, I think, writes a 350-page synopsis. Um, so every writer has their own way of doing it. I have, I start with wanting to know what the end is um, because I always take the view that you wouldn't get in the car and start driving unless you had some idea where you're going. Whether you're driving to your local Tesco, whether you're going to drive to Cornwall, so I always know the ending that I want to get to, and, and probably in half the books I've written, the ending changes as I get to it because I've thought of something better. But I have that kind of vanishing point on the horizon, and then I make a very simple graph of like it's like a three-act graph, three spikes, first spike, second spike, which is bigger than the first, third spike, which is the biggest one of all. And the first spike is a sort of what I call a wow moment, where something that happens that turns the whole book on, on its head. Um, the second spike is the sort of midway climax, which has got to be even bigger. And then the third is the actual climax of, of the story. So I, I map out those three, those three key points. Um, and then I plan the first hundred pages in some detail. Um, but then after that, I love the spontaneity. I, I, I always say that if something, if you don't surprise yourself as an author, you're not going to surprise your reader. So I love it when a character pops in my head that wasn't there 10 seconds ago. And I think that's part of the magic of being a writer. It's when stuff stuff happens. You say ideas are given to you rather than you come up with them Talk to me about the one that presented itself for the new one, Find Them Dead. Uh, what was the very first idea 
that you had for the story that would become this book? Well, I did jury service in 2005. And I came away with very mixed views about it. Um, both the kind of lack of security for jurors, um, the extraordinary kind of mix of people, um, and, and comments that I'd heard about sort of jurors from other people who'd been on jury service. You know, I know one friend of mine was on jury service and had this particularly sort of tweedy, horsey woman, and, and uh, the uh, the accused was was a gay man, and, and this, this woman. This was only about fifteen years ago. This woman said in the sort of first recess, "Well, the man's obviously guilty, isn't he?" And they, they said, "Well, how can you say that? We haven't even heard the." We're only halfway through the prosecution. Yeah, but he's, he's a homosexual, isn't he? And the idea that people like this can actually be on a jury determining the fate of someone's life, that was my starting point. And then also, um, over the last four years, I've been out, although I go out mostly with the police in Brighton, I'd been out with the, the Met Police in London a lot. Um, I have a inspector friend who's on the violent crime task force and that was the task force that Theresa May set up with the mayor of London um, and and the chief of police to try to combat both knife crime and the growing county lines gangs and I became fascinated about these county line gangs because what were they? It's a word that everybody's heard, um, but nobody, if you ask somebody what, what actually is a county line, people find it quite hard to define. So, I, you know, I wanted to learn and understand that about how they're using kind of kids to travel mostly on trains so they're not going to be stopped on the roads, you know, carrying drugs um, literally across county lines to different, different cities um, and with burner phones. And I found this whole world sort of fascinating. And third is that I've always had a passion for classic cars. And I heard of a a major classic car dealer some years ago, um, who was also a a race driver, who regularly smuggled drugs. I mean, I'm talking big amounts of drugs, in the hundreds of thousands, if not into the millions of pounds, hidden in, in the kind of chassis and tires and other other cavities of high-end sort of Ferraris and, and other such cars. Um, so those were like, like three starting points that I had. Now, rather airiferally, you, you say that you, you know, know the start, you want to know the end, that's what's keeping you going. And you've got these three peaks. How are you finding out what they are? You've got, you've got these ideas, which you've just spoken about, county lines... Uh, a trial that the process of fair justice is how how are you sitting there and thinking that needs to be one peak this is the second bigger one and this is the denouement um well first the first peak i always sort of have something that kind of turns the story either turns the story on its head or that um i think stephen king used to call it the gotcha it's it's the it's, it's the, the element that hooks the reader, and, and I think probably my favourite one that I have ever written was in Dead Simple, 
when and that, and that, came, that first peak came right at the first end of the first chapter, much earlier than normal in my books, where you know a bunch of students, a bunch of guys, they're all all old muckers, and one of them's getting married, and he's always played terrible pranks on the others when they've got married. So they decide to pay him back big time by getting him drunk, and they're going to bury him in a coffin in a grave in a remote area of the local woods. I leave him there for two hours, then go back and dig him up. And it's all going to be a huge prank, and they, they leave him there, they give him a bottle of whiskey, a porno magazine, a walkie-talkie. But, you know, they put him in the coffin, drop it in the grave, cover it up, drive off, and they're all wiped out in a car crash. And that's the sort of kind of gotcha moment that I love trying to write. Something that you're just not expecting, and then you think, well, what the hell is going to happen next? I guess the question then is how organic is that how much you sat there brainstorming thinking i have to try and catch them out i need something that's going to flip this on his head and how much of this is just the natural progression of that first idea um i i i i spend ages thinking of that um i mean i think well i always say that i think that the three elements to writing a novel in terms of importance, and number one, and far the most important, is character. You know, we read books to what happen, to see what happens to characters we, we meet and engage with right at the very start. Um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've got a character that you really like, you could have them reading the phone directory for 300 pages and you'd still be engaged. Second is research, because as, as I said a little bit earlier, I think that when we read, you know, we want to learn as well as have a good read. And also, people are smart. You know, you can tell if an author knows or doesn't know what their subject is. And you know, if you're reading a book and clearly the author's got got it all wrong, um, I, I personally immediately lose interest and, and, and finish with the book. And plotting, I put a long way third. I mean, it, plotting is vitally important, but it's, if you don't like the characters, if you don't believe the writer knows what he or she is writing, you're not going to care about the plot. But then I love, you know, assuming that I've got the character right, assuming that I've got the research right, then it's, it's great to be able to play games with the reader. I used to play chess a lot when I was, when I was in my teens. And, and as a kid, I was lucky. My granddad was like an amateur chess champion in Austria and taught me to play chess when I was six. And I often liken plotting to playing chess against yourself. Um, and you know, thinking moves ahead. Um, and, and sometimes I'll come up, but I, one, of the, one of the techniques that I use, or tricks of the trade, or however one calls it, is to come up with something that is seemingly utterly impossible. And then, uh, without sort of getting a spoiler away, getting back to kind of dead simple, you know, we know this guy is trapped in the coffin. Um, he's getting weaker and weaker. Finally, somebody finds the coffin, they open it, and he's not there. And you immediately go, what has happened? So I always try with everybody to find a, a moment like that for the second high point, where everything that you, 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 you'd thought suddenly has changed. I am a fairly ruthless editor, so my evening... You know, I'll, I'll do my evenings writing. In the morning, I will rewrite that chapter. 
And then I'll very often start my evening again by going back through that chapter before I start the next one, just honing it even further. Um, so I, I think, I mean, my my early books, I would write 160 to 180,000 words, and they'd end up being cut down to you know, 110 and 120. Um, nowadays, I'm delivering around about 115, 120, and they end up between about 100 and 110 mostly. So I'm, I'm much tougher. But I've also, I have a really wonderful um, home, home, we call it Team James, basically. It's my wife, it's um, my assistant, it's my real life Roy Grace, Dave Gaylor. Um, and I've also got three friends who, um, two of them are retired solicitors, um, who read the books every like approximately 150 pages and they and I trust their judgment they're not people who kind of read it and go oh, it's wonderful Peter best thing you've ever written they'll go look this is shit or <laughs> yeah they're they're brutal uh, and, and and that really helps as well so if I'm going off beam I've got an early steer on it has your ability to cut down the amount of words you are delivering uh, has has that taught you to I guess has, has that made you better at writing the the correct word in the first place, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it. it, it, it you know, we all. I think all writers learn as we as we as we progress. You know, we all learn from the writers that we've admired and both present and past. Um, and I think that for me, the most important thing is is always to try to be fresh. Um, you know, I'm not a Martin Amis fan, but. Um, I, I really like something he said many years ago when he, I think he was trying to describe I think it was a loaf of bread on a kitchen table and he spent 24 hours trying to think how to describe that in a new and fresh original way uh, and he came up with an idea I can't remember exactly but I, it's something like I'm talking about how the world had moved on during that time that piece of bread was sitting there and it's something that I always do try, you know, I think there's nothing more disheartening than to open a book and the first line was, it was a lovely sunny day and the birds were singing. <laughs> you know, I love it, you know, when, you know, one of the best opening lines of a novel is you know, George Orwell in you know, 1984, it was midnight and the clocks were striking 13. Uh, you know, when, when you get something that just goes, you, you immediately go, I want to read this. And, and you know in that first sentence... And to me, the most important line in, in, in a book is the first sentence. And, and the second most important is the last sentence. Because I think the first sentence will decide if a lot of people are actually going to read the book. And the last sentence will decide if they're ever going to bother reading another book of yours. How much time do you sit there brooding about the first sentence? Is it always the first thing you write? Sometimes do you come back to it to really perfect that? Oh, yeah, the first few days of a book, I will write that first sentence, first paragraph, first page, and then first chapter endlessly. Um, and I'll get, all the time I'm writing the book, every few days I'll go back and read that first paragraph and that first chapter. And I'm constantly tweaking it. Um, it, it to me, it's... It, 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 books... To me, books are partly about feel... And I think that 
the first sentence sets the feel of a book. Um, you know, Brighton Rock, which I think has gone the best first sentences ever written. It was, within three hours of arriving in Brighton, Hale knew they meant to murder him. And then he goes on with his, with his inky fingers and his bitten nails. Uh, and, and you've immediately got a sense of what's going on. Why is he in Brighton? Who's going to murder him? He's obviously a bit shabby. You're, you're intrigued. Well, lastly, let me just ask you... a. a a question about the, the the reader side of things. You've got this reputation for writing page-turning thrillers that are very quick, as you say, short chapters. How much does that be- become a burden when that is what you're known for? Do, does, do you place a lot of pressure on yourself to, I need to make this a thriller? Is this thrilling enough? Is it quick enough? Will they turn the page? Um, no, I mean... I- I like to, I try to write the way that I like to read. And I think like a, a lot of us, I tend to read in bed at night when I'm tired. And if I pick up a book and I see the next chapter is 53 pages, I go, oh, shot, fuck that. <laughs> well, I'll look at it tomorrow. If it's like, oh, it's only a page and a half, I'll have that. Oh, the next chapter is only two pages. Oh. This chapter is only a page and a half. Oh, this one's only four pages. Next thing I know, it's three in the morning and I'm still reading. And I think that reasonably short sentences, reasonably short chapters help with the pace of a book and help. I mean, I think if you're writing literary fiction that you can, you can make the chapters as, as long as, as, you, as you want. But if you're writing a thriller, I do think that short chapters, punchy, sentences, paragraphs, do help. And also, I mean, critically, for me, I'm a great believer in, in timeline. You know, um, I think, you know, the Greeks, Greek playwrights always said, you know, the unit, three unities of time, place, and action. And, I, and again, I think I, I, most of my Roy Grace novels take place over quite a short time period. Um, the, my previous one, Dead If You Don't, um, actually takes place over 48 hours. Um, and, and they don't usually take place over more than a few weeks. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Peter James for coming on the show. You can find out more about his brand new Roy Grace novel, Find Them Dead, over at writersroutine.com. Now, next week, we are chatting to Melanie Blake. Uh, she's a self-made millionaire. She runs a huge talent agency. And, she, and she's got quite a story uh, and she's just written a Jackie Collins-inspired book called The Thunder Girls. Uh, we'll talk about that next week with Melanie. Make sure you come back for that. Uh, please do subscribe to the show as well. So many brilliant chats with authors coming up in the next few weeks. You will never miss an episode if you just click subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Uh, while you're on there as well, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us out and also help the people who need the help of our authors to find the help of our authors. And if you fancy, support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine as well. That would be amazing. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week with Melanie Blake. Bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.